0: Have you ever felt like the church is not a place where you can bring your questions? Have you ever felt like the church is not a safe place where you can bring the real questions I'm talking about? I'm not just talking about Bible questions. I'm talking about questions that kind of question the very foundation of our faith. Do you have, have you ever had questions or maybe gone through a season of doubts and, and you feel like if you were to admit where you were in this season where you're doubting the things that you've been given in your faith, you're doubting some of the, maybe even the authority of scriptures. If you brought that to church people or to the church, have you felt like you'd be swept under the rug or looked, out, looked at as kind of a weirdo, ostracized? Have you ever had the feeling that there's just no room in the church for real questions? That, that if you're having a faith crisis, you need to go somewhere else or you just need to keep it to yourself because if you bring that to people in the church, you're just going to get this, this idea that you just need to grit your teeth and Just have more faith. Do you know what I'm talking about? Got to have a faithier faith. There's something wrong with you and your faith and the amount of trust that you have in God. You obviously have not been in the scriptures lately if you have questions and doubts. Have you had the feeling in the church maybe that certainty is the end all be all? The opposite of it, uncertainty. That's a scary, dangerous place that we can't go to in the church. We can't be uncertain of anything. We always have to have an answer. And if you ask a question that might challenge something like the authority of scriptures or the existence of God or, or, or why awful things happen in this world and we still say God is good, why is that? If you bring this stuff, It's unwelcome. I think the church in general has done a really good job of being a place that's very unsafe for the realist and most foundational of human questions. And I would say it's not just... The evangelical church in the West is really good at it, but I've been in the church in the global South and in the global Far East, and I get the same things. Questions, real questions, hard questions, the questions that might cause you to take a step back for a moment, they're just not welcome. Or maybe have you ever felt like every christian around you signed a positivity clause in their contract with god do you know what i'm talking about have you ever felt like the christians that you're around or the people in the church that you engage with must live in some holy happy bubble where they just see life through this rose-colored lens and if anything bad ever happens to them they have this they've turned the bible into trite Corny hallmark statements, and they have a verse to explain anything that might ever happen that's bad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you been around that Christian, or maybe you are that Christian? No offense. (laughs) Where something bad happens, and somebody says, "Oh, I'm so sorry, but you know, God works for the good of those who love Him." So keep on keeping on. Or, or when you have a hardship, and you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have you said that, or maybe seen that athlete with that tattooed on their bicep? Not realizing that Paul wasn't talking about winning the Super Bowl, he was actually talking about enduring through suffering and hardship that felt beyond human capacity. seems as if the church has become this very unsafe place to bring the real questions of life, to bring uncertainty. We feel like we always have to bring answers, while, like we're a place where people will find answers. And I get it, because we're a people who say we've found the way, the truth, and the life, and his name is Jesus. And we, that's, a, that's a good thing. But friends, the church must always be not just a, a safe place to ask questions. It must be the safest place to ask whatever question a person can think of the church must be a safe place for someone to come to and say i don't really i don't know if i believe in this anymore but it doesn't feel like that more often than not does it? It doesn't feel very safe doesn't feel like a place where we can bring our sadness or our depression or our or our the 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 rough seasons of life that we all endure and that we all walk through it feels like on sunday morning sometimes you got to put on a face and you got to put on an act and you got to make it seem like everything's okay right i think what i'm talking about is a reason why many in our culture are finding the church more and more irrelevant because, see, people in our culture in this time-space moment are asking the questions. People in our time-space moment are asking the hard questions that many of them see the church as being scared of and having no place for. And so people who have these questions, which is most people, particularly young people, in other words, the future of the church, they're going elsewhere with these questions. They're going elsewhere with this reality, this human experience that can't be bundled into a positivity clause. There's no reason that post-modernity in academia looks at the church as being irrelevant because they see the church being built on and our faith being built on insecurity and pat answers rather than really dealing with the mess of life we want to make life black and white when really it's really really gray sometimes isn't it it's a problem In the church and i think if we continue in this way of not being a safe place for questions in faith crises and uncertainty and sadness and seasons of hardship and darkness we are going to become irrelevant now the ironic thing is that we have this It feels like we have this faith tradition right now, this moment in the church where we don't have a whole lot of room for questions. We don't have a lot of room for uncertainty and doubts and faith crises and and just negativity in general. The ironic thing is that the people of God today, right now, don't have space for it, but the scriptures that we hold to so highly that we say our whole faith, our whole worldview, our whole theology is built on this book the irony is that this book is full of those questions. The irony is that we try to sweep these questions under the rug, these, these questions that might feel heretic, heretical, might feel like they might get us ostracized from the club. We try to sweep them under the rug and, and, and hide them. But the fact is, is that there's a book in this Bible that's dedicated to all those questions. Fact is, is that our holy text has a book in here, dedicated to uncertainty and grayness rather than black and white, darkness, meaning and meaninglessness. It's one of the reasons why I love the Bible so much. I go on and on about my love for the Bible. Here's yet another reason why I love this book. For one. It has one consistent theme. Through, I could go on and on. It has one consistent theme throughout 66 different books written over the course of a couple thousand years. And then it, it's, it's got, the fact is, is that I think Christianity and our, the, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures are totally unique in that we have this book that's dedicated to asking questions that don't seem safe to religious people. We have this book in here that seems to undermine all the other books. All the other books are trying to get us to, most of them are trying to get us to tell us what we should believe and how, how life works. And this book in the Bible is telling us, I don't get how life works. It seems meaningless more often than not. Unexplainable. These rules that we have that if you do good, do right, follow the rules, you're gonna get rewarded in life. The reality is is that when you look around in the real world, it doesn't always work like that, does it? Bad things happen to good people and we need to fit this into our theology, into our faith experience, into our human experience. And there's this book of the Bible that says these exact same things in ways that make churchy people like us, like most of us, feel really uncomfortable. If you have ever or right now find yourself in a period, in a season of life, where you're allowing yourself to ask those hard questions, where you're being confronted by disappointment and it's, it feels like it's trying to warp and shape your worldview if you're in one of those seasons of life where you're just unsatisfied in general and wondering where this good God that everyone talks about is, I think you're in the right place at the right time and in the right faith tradition even. Because see, we have this book of the Bible that we're going to be diving into called the book of Ecclesiastes that most of us avoid because it's very, very uncomfortable for religious people. The book of Ecclesiastes, is. I, as I've been reading it, I've been addressed, and as I've been studying it, I've been challenged in ways that I haven't thought I'd be challenged in the, by the scriptures, challenged by the questions you can ask in the, the how the Bible doesn't give us pat answers all the time for hard questions. Christians love to do it, but the Bible itself doesn't. It lets us sit with them. It lets us contemplate them. It lets us seek God in conversation with people together over these hard, nitty-gritty questions. But see, the fun thing is, is that even though the book of Ecclesiastes might make us religious people feel uncomfortable, there's a bunch of, of people who are hiding in plain sight in the church who have these questions who have these wrestle with uncertainty and doubt and faith crises and i think the book of ecclesiastes might just be the most comfortable book for those of us who are hiding in plain sight with questions doubts uncertainties and faith crises this book of ecclesiastes is going to let us know that If you have those questions, if you have them beneath the surface and you feel like you haven't been able to bring them, you're not alone. I think the book of Ecclesiastes is the most human book of all of the books in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes is this book that's going to confront our worldview over and over and over again. And the fun thing is is that it feels apropos to this moment in many ways. I like podcasts. I, I listen to podcasts. That's what I do in my spare time, whether I'm mowing the lawn or on a road trip or whatever it is. There's this fashionable word for young people, in the, young people of faith these days that everyone's talking about, it seems like. Randy mentioned it. Randy Schmore mentioned it earlier this morning. The word is deconstruction deconstruction. We're in this time-space moment in the church where even though much of the church gives no space for questions, we have this pocket of the church, or maybe even a little bit just a step outside the church, that really actually celebrates asking those questions. And you'll hear people, maybe you've said it yourself to people around you, I feel like I'm in a season of deconstruction. Have you said that? Or have you heard somebody else say that and maybe listened to something or read something and identified with it and said, I think I'm going to be in a season of deconstruction where I'm going to take some of the foundational parts of my faith apart and let them sit and see how it gets reconstructed and put back together. Do you identify with that at all? And it's almost a must in any faith journey, whether it's this dramatic Thing, or whether it's just a gradual thing, confronting the things that we've been given and asking if they're real. Deconstruction. One of the kind of feelings that I get when I talk to people about deconstruction or who are going through a season of deconstruction, one of them is that it's kind of a cool thing. If you're cool, if you're trendy, if you're relevant in the church, in, the, in your faith, you've got to be deconstructing. Otherwise, it's, you're, you're irrelevant that's immature, just sorry to tell you. But also, it feels like we think we found this new thing. We have a word for it even in the church, deconstruction, man. And and it's it's this unique thing that we just fell across. And maybe it is a unique thing in the modern church, because in the modern church, postmodern church, we haven't had a lot of space for questions like I was saying in the whole introduction of the sermon. But It feels like maybe we think we're special and unique. We're asking questions that nobody of faith has ever had the guts to ask ever. And all you got to do is open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes in many other books, but particularly the book of Ecclesiastes, and you'll find that the ancient people were asking the same difficult questions that we are 2,500 years ago. What you look, what you find, if you open up the book of Ecclesiastes, is that this is a book that could have been written by a postmodern 20-something who's deconstructing their faith and asking the same questions. It seems exactly the same. Again, it's one of the things that makes me love the Bible so much. It gives us space to bring those questions and doubts and uncertainty. So as we dive in, I hope you're going to let yourself be challenged. If you find yourself as one of those who count, are in a moment of faith security, I feel really good in my faith. I'm not, I've, I've, I feel like I'm not asking those questions. That's great. But I'm going to encourage you to still let yourself be addressed by the Word of God. Still let yourself wrestle with the seamless, seemingly meaninglessness of life. And if you find yourself in one of those moments of life that's just kind of excruciating or a little uncertain, it feels like your faith legs are very wobbly right now and you're on shaky ground. I want to let you know that you're going to find yourself being comforted during this series. Because you're going to find that people, the people of God, have found themselves on shaky faith legs. For generation after generation after generation and God holds it all. And he actually says, go ahead. Go ahead and ask that question. Go ahead and bring that uncertainty. Go ahead and come to me with your anger and your sadness and your longing and your disappointment and your your disconnectedness from the rest of the happy world. Bring it to me. See, because I'm a God who just is near the brokenhearted. Disenfranchisement. Disengagement. Disappointment. I know it. I'm in love with humanity, and it's nothing new to me, what God wants to tell you. And all of that does nothing to change his love for you. This is going to be a fun time. Before we get into the book of Ecclesiastes too far, we have to get a little bit geeky. Are you ready to get a little geeky, a little Bible geeky? Some of you are excited. Some of you are like, okay, uh, can you just be loud when you're done with the geeky time so I can wake up? Let's turn into Bible geeks for a little bit. In order to really fully, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes for about three months. We're going to do a deep dive into it. And in order to really get into a book and understand a book of the Bible, we have to ask some geeky questions, like the questions of who, when, why was it written by, when was it written, why was it written. That'll help us just understand it a little bit, all right? So are you ready to get into these questions? If I were to ask you, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, what would you say? I heard a lot of one name, Solomon. It is just taken as a given that Solomon wrote the book. And there's little hints in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon wrote the book. And what biblical scholars for the last 50 to 100 years have said is that we really don't know who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but we do know, we are very confident that Solomon did not write it. We're confident that Solomon actually did not write it. Let me give you a couple of reasons why biblical scholars are fairly unanimous in agreeing that Solomon did not write it. First off, a couple of things just from the text itself. What we'll find in the book of Ecclesiastes is that there's two voices, the voice of the author and the voice of the teacher. The teacher is one that we've taken as being Solomon. Because he said he was a king over Israel, a king in Jerusalem, and Solomon is, a, is 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 kind of the father of the wisdom movement in Judaism. The author actually has maybe five, six, seven verses that he actually speaks, he or she. It's a couple verses in the very beginning in chapter 1 and then a couple of verses at the end of chapter 12 at the very end of the book. And those couple verses at the very end of the book are probably the most important of all of them. But I'm going to encourage you, don't cheat and move forward. Let's engage this book, this ancient book, in the way the ancients did, which is not cheating and moving ahead because they couldn't read. They couldn't do it. It was orally given to them. And they were just listening. And as they listened, they sat in the tension. As they listened, they sat in the questions and the uncertainty and the uncomfortability up until the very end. So in the text, the teacher then is, we've taken him him as Solomon. But in the text, in in Ecclesiastes 1.16, it says, the writer says that "I I was the wisest of all the rulers in Jerusalem that have come before me. Now if that's Solomon... If you're really paying attention, you're a good Bible scholar, you realize that if that's Solomon, that can't be. Because see, if Solomon is saying, I was the wisest of all the rulers in Jerusalem that came before me, how many rulers came before Solomon in Jerusalem? Just one. It's his father, David. And so he's making it seem like there were a number, many rulers in Jerusalem that came before me, and I was the wisest of all of them. That can't be Solomon. Another one in Ecclesiastes one twelve, just a couple of verses ahead of that, the writer says that when he talks about when I was king over Jerusalem when I was king now that also can't be Solomon see because Solomon became king when his father David died and he lived to around most scholars say about 60 years old and he was king all the way until when he died the moment he wasn't king was when he didn't take a breath and then his son Rehoboam became king over Israel so Solomon would certainly not be one who would identify himself as one who was king over Israel more than that, if you go forward, the, the first four chapters or so of, of Ecclesiastes come from this perspective of the teacher saying that he was king over Israel, and that's his perspective. But then in Ecclesiastes 5 and in Ecclesiastes 8, the writer, the teacher, I'm sorry, is coming from the perspective more of a subject than the king himself. He's writing from a different perspective, and what all this seems to tell us is that this is a person who comes from the wisdom tradition of Solomon, putting himself or herself in a place of that wisdom tradition, one like Solomon, but not actually Solomon himself. What helps us even more, what biblical scholars can say very confidently this wasn't written by Solomon, is the language that it was written in. Now Ecclesiastes, just like every other book of the Bible, was written in Hebrew, but Hebrew, like all other languages in the history of the world, changed and evolved over time. It changed and evolved over time, and it it borrowed certain words depending on the people that they were around. Um, English does this as well. English has changed and evolved over time. American English in particular, because we're surrounded, we we have so many immigrants, we're a nation of immigrants, And so our nation, our language reflects that. Kindergarten is a good example. Kindergarten is just a straight-up German word. Kindergarten literally means garden of children. Garden of children, that's really weird, but we, because there's been so many Germans in America, have adopted that. It was adopted by the English in the 18th century and then by the Americans in the 19th century. It's just this word that we take as being school for little kids. Not a garden of children, but a school for little kids. We've borrowed that word and we've made it our own. It's what happens when you're influenced by different people groups and different ethnicities and different nations. Now, the the main reason why biblical scholars would say this was absolutely not Solomon who wrote that is because the Hebrew language that Ecclesiastes is written in is not written in Solomonic 10th century Hebrew language. The language that the, Hebrew, that, that the Hebrew that the book of Ecclesiastes featured is a much more modern, probably from at, at latest the 6th century and probably more like the 5th or 4th century B.C., 500s, 400s. 500 years after Solomon was dead and gone. And the reason that they can confidently say that is because there's a number of Persian words, words that feel that are Hebrew that are adopted from the Persian language. And then what you, what you do when you're a good biblical scholar is you say, what time of, what period in the history of the Israelites would they have been influenced by the Persians? And if you know your Bible History, you know your Old Testament timeline. You'd know that the Israelites were taken over by the Babylonians because of their sin. God gave them over to, to 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 themselves. Withdrew His protective presence. The Babylonians came in, conquered them, completely slaughtered most of Israel, and the rest of Israel that was uh, that was kept alive, they were taken into captivity into exile in Babylon. And then the Persians, who were another great power at the time, conquered Babylon, and so the Israelites were were captive in exile to the Persian people. And all of a sudden, they just started adopting their language a little bit, working Persian words into the Hebrew. And that's the kind of Hebrew that you find in the book of Ecclesiastes. A kind of Hebrew that you would have never found 500 years earlier in Solomonic Israel. Are you with me? We're getting down and dirty. This is geeky stuff. I'm enjoying myself, though. So who? We don't know who, and here's another fun part. We in postmodern, in our postmodern world, when somebody writes something, they are the most important thing is that I get credit for what I write, right? We start off a book and the author has his dedications because it's a very personal work, and it's, it's all very individualistic, it's very personal. We want to make sure we know who the author was because it helps us. In the ancient Near East, it wasn't that way. What we find in the book of Ecclesiastes is much like many other books in the ancient Near East and many other books in the Old Testament, the author seems to actually go to great lengths to hide and conceal his or her identity. See, because in the ancient Near East, who wrote it wasn't important, the most important thing. What was the most important thing is what is written. And we don't want to be distracted by the who we want to focus on the what this is a very ancient near eastern way of writing the author concealing their identity we've said it solomon because it makes us feel good and makes us feel like we know the bible a little bit more that's not the ancient near eastern way of reading it that's in the postmodern american way of reading it so we don't know who it was but we know it was a person in the wisdom tradition of solomon and the why it was written is really fun and helps the when as well. This obviously wasn't a book. Ecclesiastes is not a book that was written in the time of Solomon. The reason that we can confidently say that is because in the time of Solomon was Israel's golden age. Just after David, the king that should epitomize all other kings, and Solomon builds the temple of God, and it's beautiful and elaborate and, and luxurious, and it symbolizes the presence of, of God with among his people Israel in the city of Jerusalem, and they are enjoying peace and wealth and comfort. That is a time when you don't question your faith. When you find yourself comfortable, rich, wealthy, sounds like America. Most most of the people aren't saying, Where is God? Because everything sucks. You're saying, Wow. We must be doing everything right. This feels good. We've got it right. God is with us. Look at the temple. God's presence is there. We're taken care of. We're comfortable. We're a superpower. Praise Jesus. Now, see, this is written from a completely different perspective. This is written from a perspective that says the universe is not linear and systematic. This is written from a perspective of one who's in suffering one who's probably gone through exile and has their identity ripped from them, who feels like we've done all the right things and yet this tragic thing has still happened to us. Where is God? It's written from a perspective of one who's, who knows oppression and injustice and sees it everywhere around them and is having a hard time reconciling the injustice and oppression that they live in light of with this God that they say is good. This is written from a perspective of a marginalized people, a people who have been, who have suffered and who have tasted death and suffering and who, who, who see life no longer, I can't see it as black and white anymore, it's gray, and I don't know how to fit that into my black and white theology. This is written from a post-exilic point of view, a su- point of view of suffering and oppression and questions and uncertainty. And this is where we find the world of Ecclesiastes in about the 4th or 5th century B.C. It's 9.57. I've got about, I've got a little bit of time if we want to. Would you like to just dip our toes into the book of Ecclesiastes before we're done? Would you like to just get a little taster? Would you humor me? Okay, let's do it. Let's actually read a little bit of Ecclesiastes. So this is Ecclesiastes 1 this is the author now, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. No wonder everybody gets confused that it's Solomon. And then all of a sudden the author starts immediately quoting quoting the teacher. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's quite an interesting way to start out a book. This guy must have been the life of the party in ancient Israel, you know what I'm saying? Meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they return to again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear, it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. This is something, a refrain you're going to hear over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Fun times. Ancient deconstruction. Now a couple things as we dive into this first little introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. As I said, there's two voices that we're going to hear in the book of Ecclesiastes. The vast majority of it is going to be the one who's called the teacher. The author is kind of the host of our discussion in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he introduces the teacher, then he goes away and just lets the teacher and his teachings go on and on and on. And then the author is going to come in in the end and put a bookend on it, put his stamp of approval and his thoughts on it. But the the rest of the book, the majority of the book, is written by this one who's called the teacher. The teacher. We're going to get up close and personal and intimate with this one called the teacher. Now, this word teacher is a Hebrew word that's been translated as teacher, and some, some translations preacher and others. The Hebrew word is actually just a name, Kohelet. Kohelet. Let me hear you say Kohelet. Kohelet. Kohelet is most likely a pseudonym that the author, that the teacher is using. Again, one who's come from the wisdom tradition of Solomon within Israel. There's this tradition of wisdom, and Kohelet, who I'm going to be referring to, the teacher, Kohelet, comes onto the scene and he brings this word. He begins with this word that's going to be scattered about throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The word hevel. Hevel. It's spelled with a B, pronounced with a V. Let me hear you say hevel. Hevel is this word that's this Hebrew word that is like most Hebrew words. They're more complex and rich than English words. You need a number of words to understand this ancient Hebrew word hevel. Hevel, if you have the, new t- the NIV version like I would just read from, it's going to translate this word hevel over and over again, 100% of the time in the book of Ecclesiastes as meaningless. Meaningless. And that's an appropriate translation sometimes. But also if you have the King James version of their NRSV, this word would come up as vanity. Hevel is vanity. Not in the way of, oh, I'm so good looking. Like we take it as vanity as being all is vain. All is in vain. It's meaningless. But there's yet another way to translate this word hevel, which appears throughout the Old Testament numerous times. It's half of the times this word hevel is in the Old Testament. It's in Ecclesiastes. This other way to translate the word hevel is breath. Breath. Everything is but a breath. And what that means is we're going to find the writer, the teacher, Kohelet, saying over and over again, life is like a breath. Here today and gone tomorrow. It's fleeting. We put all this value into this world, into our world, into what we're working towards, but it's heavily. In many ways, it's meaningless, and in real ways, it's just but a breath. Kohelet, the teacher, says, Generations come and generations go, and nobody remembers. Fun guy. But here's a real thing. Let me just ask you. You can answer. Don't answer out loud. This is just rhetorical. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Do you know what their names are? I know my great-grandparents' names on my dad's side because my great-grandma lived with us when I was little. I don't know the great, my mom's grandparents' names. Do you know, if you know, if you're really good at your family tradition, you know your great-grandparents' names or maybe you're old enough to do that, do you remember, how about this, do you remember your great-great-grandparents' names? Do you know them? Here's just a little affirmation of the writer of Ecclesiastes. You're their dang family and you don't even remember their names. See, because it's Hevel. Life is a breath. We're here today, and my great-grandkids probably won't even remember my name. Hevel. It's a different take on life, isn't it? Now, before I leave us too, too depressed, you can, that's one way of seeing this, just completely hevel, meaningless. And maybe that's actually good for you to sit in right now. But let me give you just a really quick other take on this scripture that we find here. The, the Kohelet is telling us hevel, hevel, meaningless. It's just but a breath. No one's going to be remembered. All the work that we toil after, it's just going to evaporate. It's a breath. And this is a message for postmodern Americans. We put a lot of value into what we produce, don't we? I think Kohelet here is telling us you guys see yourselves as human doings rather than human beings. You count your value and your worth by what you produce, by what you make, by what you, the money that you make, the empire that you're building, the family that you're building. Add it all up and it's just a breath. It's as if humanity is on this big mouse wheel and we're running and running and thinking we're getting ahead and we're actually not really going much anywhere. Where does our effort get us? But then he actually brings up creation and he says, maybe could you let creation address you? See, because the streams, they continually flow into the sea. And it's not as if the ocean goes, had enough, thank you very much, you did your job. Great job, streams, we're done here now. They just keep going. And they don't ask questions. The sun... I watched this this morning, I got the coffee going, it was dark out, prayed a little bit, and I watched the sunrise, it was beautiful, just, I wanted to wake up my wife just to see it a little bit, but you know what, it did the same exact thing yesterday. And it did the same exact thing the day before that and the week before that and the generation before that and the generation before that. And for millennia after millennia after millennia, the sun has just been coming up the same way every day. And it doesn't need to prove itself. It doesn't need to feel like I've accomplished something new. It doesn't need to to say, "This, this I find meaning. It just finds meaning in being so kohelet might be saying what if you could just let your humanity your your postmodern american humanity that's trying to work for something and prove yourself and leave your mark life is but a breath can't you learn from the sunrise and from the streams that god's created just take today for what it is cuz you don't know what you have tomorrow life is heavy It's a breath. It's meaningless in some ways. But you have today. Can you live in it? Do you have to prove yourself? Or can you actually stand here and say, thank you, God, for my life today? This is what we're going to have to get used to coming to grips with in the book of Ecclesiastes. All the things that we think give us value and meaning The writer, the Kohelet, the teacher, is going to say, are you sure? Because all that stuff fades away. And then what do you have? Some of us are getting addressed to you from a place of privilege and saying, just so you know, it's all going to evaporate like heaven, like a breath. And some of us are in that place of vulnerability where the rug's been swept out from underneath us. And you really have the ability to hear now Kohelet say, okay God's in the present moment right now he's not in the future because it doesn't exist yet he's right here is that enough for you let's stand and pray father in this search for meaning in the search for significance and value and identity in this rat race that we feel like we're, we're running on this mouse wheel, trying to get ahead, trying to get promoted, trying to get recognition, trying to get prominence, trying to, to, to have a family that gives me a good name, having some of that swept, up, swept out from underneath us. Wherever we find ourselves, we stand here right now We stand here in this moment in all that we have right now. And we stand in your presence. And I say that you are more than enough in this moment. You give my life meaning in a meaningless, chaotic universe. I stand here in this moment and I say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come and bring your comfort. Come and bring your presence that's here in this moment. We stand in it, and now we even have the audacity to celebrate your presence in your life right here, right now, in what, in the only thing that we have. I want to encourage you, friends, we're going to worship. We're going to end our time with a little bit of worship, but I've got some friends in the back who would love to pray for you. If this uncertainty and meaningless and pain and suffering, if that's resonating with you at all, don't pass that moment up. Go back and get some prayer. I'll bet you any money you'll find healing just in that presence. in a hand on your shoulder in the words of God that just say, I see you. Go back, get some prayer, and then as that happens, let's just worship God together.